Welcome to this BGSM podcast. I'm Stefan Griffin, a junior doctor and member of the BGSM editorial team. Today I'm delighted to welcome not one, but three guests onto the podcast. Joining me today to discuss their recent editorial on how to maximise patients' adherence to rehab are Dr. Adam Gledhill, Dr. Dale Forsdyke and Tom Goom. Adam is course director for sport, exercise and health sciences at Leeds Beckett University. He is also chair of the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences Division of Psychology. Dale is a senior lecturer in sports injury management at York St. John University and is head of science and medicine at York City Tier 1 Regional Talent Club. And to finish, Tom, who's probably known to many as the running physio, um, he's a physio with over 15 years of experience who specialises in running injuries. He shares his knowledge with clinicians and runners around the world through his website running-physio.com and he runs a very popular running repairs course. So welcome all to the podcast. And as a group, you recently published an editorial on how to enhance patients' adherence to rehab. Um, why don't we start with the inspiration behind the editorial and then why it's such an important topic? Yeah, thanks a lot, Stefan. I guess the, the inspiration behind it is in a, a, number, a number of different levels, really, ranging from getting asked lots of questions about it at conferences when we delivered other kind of associated presentations and having those, you know, having those engagements with, with different people within the, the scientific community about it through to it being, uh, I guess, challenges that we've, we've also faced in our individual and, and collective practices and, and picking up on some of those things. The, the broader one, it being just a, you know, a real general, general interest area of ours uh, is something, you know, we're, we're keen to, to develop in, in areas of those as well. But I guess if we adopt more of a, an evidence-based approach to it, we know that the um, kind of non-adherence rates or poor adherence rates, depending on where you look, are anything up to and including 100%. If you, you, know, if you start looking at some of the, the data that comes from kind of high school and collegiate athletes over in America. So we know that this, this issue of non-adherence is a real challenge for clinicians. Um, we also know that then the kind of the knock-on of that can be can be quite impactful as well. We can have, we can start to have poorer uh, kind of poorer or more negative responses to the injury as a result, which can um, you know kind of further worsen those levels of rehab adherence, which can then impact on some of the, the rehab outcomes. And then you've got all of the you know the potential health implications that come along with that as well. We know that the athletes that experience some of those challenges are more susceptible to certain elements of poor mental health. We know that there are financial implications, we know there's competitive implications. So I guess really whichever angle you want to come at it from, be it health, be it finance, be it competition, there's a a rationale behind understanding this in in more detail. Um, I guess on a more personal level, part of it came out of some really interesting stuff that Tom said on Twitter. Uh, whereas, you know, quoting Barack Obama and certain, you know, different patient interactions and things like that. So, Tom, I don't know if you want to, to share one or two of those, those things that you were discussing on Twitter. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, one, one of the things with, with adherence is it goes, it goes a lot beyond um, simply this, this idea that the, the patient will going to carry out the things that we think are going to be effective for them. I think it goes more to like having a, a good connection with that, that patient. For them to feel heard and actually for the rehab to be about them 
Um, and I think one of the things I've found, because my role, I often treat people as a second, third, or even fourth opinion sometimes, is you find out a little bit about what's happened before. And you find that sometimes people aren't listened to, their, their, their goals aren't discussed, their concerns aren't discussed. Uh, things aren't ever really explained to them. They're not really kind of brought into this rehab process. So I think as much as we use the word adherence, I think it's a lot more about kind of working you know, closely with that person so that you know we get the best outcomes with them together. Um, and I think that's where some of these conversations came out on, uh, on Twitter and things about those things we've all had clinically. And I know we've got a little box in the editorial about this where you know we're talking to a patient and we're sort of saying, well, have you done your exercises? And the patient says, well, no, I haven't done really. And our heart sinks because we think, oh, they're not really going to get better. Um, and we sort of say, well, you know, why, why does this happen? And the patient's heart sinks as well because they're thinking, well, you know, how do I communicate that, to them why this, this this isn't working for me? Because they're not really involved in the process. They're not, they're not involved in that in, in that treatment. They've been given exercises to do rather than like formed a plan collaboratively with them. Sure. And I think every listener here who's involved clinically will be able to relate and empathise with that conversation. It's, it's a really entertaining little uh, little comment box in the editorial. And um, we've touched on a bit of the background there. You come up with a number of practical suggestions in the editorial on how to enhance adherence. Um, I wonder if it's worth maybe going through these for the listeners um, so they might be able to implement some of this advice in clinic when, you know, as soon as they've listened to this podcast. Um, and the other thing, part two, if I may, is the advice you give is rooted in trying to meet the basic psychological needs of, uh, of the patient. Um, and just for listeners who might not be familiar with these, um, can you just explain what you mean by them um, and then how they relate back to the rehab? Can I uh, take maybe the, the, the first strategy that, that appears on the editorial, which is, you know, the real need for to have good, strong therapeutic relationships to, to try and ensure or safeguard that that each person or patient gets a high quality of support. Because, you know, the, the research out there will suggest that a good therapeutic relationship and, and a patient or an athlete may have many different therapeutic relationships with you know, the clinician with the coach. Uh, and that's important in terms of reducing pain perceptions, improving uh, their adherence, which this focused on, uh, reducing their anxiety and fear. Um, so in a way, adherence is gonna make them more physically and psychologically ready to return to sport, which is where we want to get that, that, that athlete or, or that patient. Um, and when we start looking at, well, what is high quality, support or a high quality therapeutic relationship it may have many different characteristics depending on the context that you work in so you know uh, within my experience the, the characteristics of it needs to be consistent so it can't be feast and famine at a point where the person has less support uh, towards the end of their rehabilitation when they're re-entering sports or so suddenly they start feeling emotionally vulnerable again um, it's got to be coherent. So when we're working in large multidisciplinary teams, um, that there's a coherent message that's coming out to the athlete uh, and to the other stakeholders, that there's no kind of fragmented approach where, you know, the athlete can often get disillusioned and again, wonder where to turn to next for the, for the best source of advice. It's got to be clear. And I, and I think 
within within the medical profession, we, we tend to use very, very medicalized terms, uh, quite complex terms. And we there's this assumption that athletes or patients automatically know what that is. Um, so how you support them, the language that you're speaking needs to be crystal clear. Uh, and with it being crystal clear, that athlete needs to know what's wrong with them, what's the journey, and what might be the necessary conditions for them to re-enter sport or re-enter training. Um, and, and almost uh, another characteristic is this idea of trust, which uh, certainly my own practice, and from speaking to, to high-level athletes about the good, bad, and ugly of, of, of their return to sport process, and also features in the literature, is this idea of trust. Uh, and actually, there needs to be a two-way partnership. So for effective therapeutic working, there needs to be this element of, of, of trust. I don't know what you found with your experience, Tom. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, lots of really good points in there. Particularly, I think you're right, like sometimes the support does actually tail off towards the return to sport process because in a way, maybe clinically, we feel like we've done a large portion of our job because by that stage, perhaps patients aren't in a lot of pain. Um, they've progressed well through their rehab. Um, and I think you're right. That's probably a time where we need to up the support uh, for them, uh, particularly as you say, if they're, you know, if they're, they're unsure, they're fearful, uh, which we know people are fearing. Can, can be quite a powerful barrier to return to sport um so yeah i completely agree i think it's trying to um you know have almost like a human to human relationship with them where you're on the same level this isn't about someone being you know uh, you know that above someone else like i'm i'm in control i'm i'm the therapist i'm going to say what we're going to do um it's more about you know human interactions forming strong relationships and and actually delivering information on a level that they can understand um and then checking back that they that they are actually understanding it um, as well i think as part of that process you know getting those sort of feedbacks um, at the end of the session and i think it can be really powerful as part of this to have these shared goals and they should i think come not from our agenda in terms of you know we're under pressure for certain things we've got to do clinically but it should come from the patient's agenda um you know what does the what does a patient want to achieve and i think clinically it's much much easier to to deliver that when you know what it is um, and I think we, we want to find that out right in the first session. What, what are your goals? Let's share those goals together. Let's work together on the same level to achieve them. And I think that's a really important step in building those good relationships. Um, something that's really helped me, and again, it may be well context specific, is the pre-injury relationship that you have with your athletes uh, as a clinician is absolutely golden in terms of forming your injury therapeutic relationship. So I work mainly in a club setting and a development setting. So I'm able to put together almost like pre-injury social support plans. Uh, so you've got different needs of the athlete matched to the different stakeholders. Everybody knows, again, whose responsibility is it for? For example, if the athlete needs chaperoning to an appointment, who does the athlete turn to uh, when they're a little bit down and frustrated? Uh, so we can almost open these pre-injury relationships, plan from them. I'm in a really fortunate position where I actually do a lot of work with non-injured athletes as well. So that relationship is formed before an injury happens. Uh, and a really good strategy might be rather than the clinicians being the treatment room, actually being engaged with non-injured athletes or maximizing that 
can maximise that pre-injury relationship, which should form the basis to augment the injury therapeutic relationship too. I, I clearly agree. Again, I think, I think as you say, it's context specific. So for, for me and, um, and I think a lot of people, um, I, I see the relationship starts with a patient quite often when they are injured. Uh, so that's when they're first going to get in touch with me because at the moment I'm not working in a, in a team environment so much. So, so that relationship will start when they're injured. Um, but then, then it's important how we do actually start that relationship and, and how that first session goes. And, and I think part of it is, first of all, giving the person the chance to really share their story and for us to resist the temptation to interrupt. So just a very simple kind of clinical thing, you know, as soon as you can in the session, you know, ask people, how did this start for you? Tell me about, about this issue and, and your concerns. And then be as quiet as you can for as long as you can and let them share it, you know, because quite often that that's an important unburdening process and you get so much useful information. Um, and I, I don't know the exact facts on this, but there's stats that they're saying that we interrupt really quickly in a clinical setting because we've got our agenda. We've got this list of things we feel we need to ask, but I, I would try and resist that temptation so that you can let them share and you can start that relationship right from the word go really. Yeah, and I think um, I think a lot of the things that that you were just that you were just talking there about there, Tom, that allude back to uh, one of Stefan's questions at the start around some of the how we start to appreciate some of these uh, some of the, the basic psychological needs within this process and how we how we integrate those. So really briefly, when we're when we're looking at the the, the basic psychological needs theory, we're talking about this these needs of competence, autonomy, and relatedness, which. I guess quite quite simply and quite briefly, in terms of competence, we're looking at the patients feeling like they're uh, they're able to complete their their rehabilitation programs, their rehabilitation activities successfully, efficiently, whichever you know whichever we're, we're looking at as being the, the best for them. In terms of the the autonomy elements, it's the the patients really feeling in more of a, a sense of control, sense of choice within the, you know, within the, within the process of rehabilitation, feeling like they've, they've really got an input into that. And then this idea of relatedness being very much around um, the patients almost maintaining like a, a sense of connectedness, a sense of, you know, more, more social connectedness and relationships with their peers within the sporting environment. And those peers can be their teammates, their coaches, their friends in and around the sport, those sorts of things. So, a lot of the things that you've just been talking about there, Tom and Dale, I guess really they fit squarely, Dale, in terms of that first point around uh, a real a real sense of relatedness and how and how we as practitioners can really help to to develop that, that sense of relatedness and those social connections, not only with our athletes, but in terms of some of the team environments, Dale, some of the things that you were talking about there around having peer-to-peer -peer working in pre-injury settings, but also within injury settings and during the return to sport process. But also there, Tom, some of the things that you were talking about as, as well around giving the athletes choice, options, input into decisions that are being made, working with them to, um, to really acknowledge what their thoughts, their feelings, their perspectives are when they're, when they're entering, in your case, the rehabilitation environment, daily in the environment that you were talking about, more generally the sporting, the sporting arena. Uh, you know, you know we've, we've worked closely on that for more years than okay to remember now. I think you had hair with it last time. Um, but a little bit around, I guess, making sure as well that we're providing a really clear rationale for, for the activities that we're doing as well. Because there's a difference between 
an athlete following an instruction and an athlete making an informed decision to engage with something. And invariably, the difference between those two things is the rationale that we provide, helping the athletes to understand the benefits of the different activities, looking at the different ways that they could meet those end goals and working through those. So hopefully that, that summarises a little bit how some of the different strategies that Tom and Dale have just been talking about there linking with some of that, that basic psychological needs there is a little bit of an underpinning to some of the work. And, you know, one of my kind of backgrounds is an educator and a, a trainer. So what I bring when I'm working with athletes is very much the principles of andragogy and, and pedagogy, uh, which filters quite nicely in, in the sentiments Adam's just, just mentioned, really, which is, you know, when I sit down with an athlete, I want them to understand, again, what is the issue? Why might that have been caused? What specifically uh, is wrong with me? Or one of a few things that might be wrong. You know, what's my journey? So we're lining the expectations up. We're not describing the journey as being, this will be a linear-based experience. Then it may be undulating. There may be setbacks. You may feel a little bit of pain, but guess what? That's part of the normal biological healing. It doesn't mean we're back to square one. Um, so we're not mis-selling that information to them. And then those necessary conditions. Based on each stage that you're going to go through to return to sport, what are those hurdles that you're going to have to get through? What are we looking at? And in that way, because with the athletes I work with in a uh, uh, young, we also use that document to track those. We tick them off so they can actually visually see the process as they achieve those goals and hopefully re-enter sport. Uh, other bits and pieces that I tend to do, um, obviously, I'm really big on explaining the value of everything that I do. I encourage questions from the athletes and because the people I work with are, are, are young between anywhere between eight and 16 uh, is, is my kind of bread and butter work. Parents as well. You know, is there any questions that you have that I have not yet answered? I'm not always convinced that the athletes understand the questions to ask. Um, and we had a great chat with Leslie Podlog about this, about him creating a heuristic for athletes of questions that they should know the answer to uh, and that they can actually take that to consultant meetings every time they see a clinician uh, every time they might see for example an snc coach a sports scientist so they understand the questions that are the sort of questions they should really know about other things that, that i use i use plenaries at the end of every single session so let's imagine it's just you know your, your classic lateral ankle sprain uh, and we've just started resuming some pitch-based running, we could start saying, well, what have we learned about your ankle today? And it's great to sit back and listen to the informed information that's going to come back out from that person's own mouth. Uh, and I also, again, uh, give quite a lot of uh, rehabilitation homework, whether that's anatomy-driven, uh, as in, you know, tell me the structure of your knee joint or your ankle. You know, why are ligaments in, important? Or one of my best uh, was actually getting one of the players to create a comic strip of biological healing processes and then being able to explain that. But for, for that player, they came out of that with a huge awareness of what was going on in their body. And actually, um, if it happened again, how they might be able to self-manage that. 
I think it can be really valuable for us as well to to reflect on what what make good working relationships. You know, um, as clinicians, when are times where we felt, yeah, that was the, that that went really well with that patient. What, what was really good about that session, um, or that or that you know period of treatment, uh, but also sometimes to place ourselves in the patient position and and think about what what are good interactions for us when we're a patient because we're all human and we will have experienced being a patient what 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 feels good what doesn't feel quite so good um i've experienced being a patient recently and i had a really good session with someone um but there were aspects of it that that didn't feel so good where i felt my my autonomy was being a bit squished um i was you know being told what the the treatment plan would in, would involve um and when that was explained to me it was explained in a really complex way uh because the person knew that i'm a bit of a, of a geek with research so they wanted to take it to a complex level but it confused me and, in, and it made me feel more doubt about that treatment because a i hadn't really chosen it myself and b i didn't really fully understand it so i think we can reflect on 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 these things our own experiences and then perhaps use that to guide us to to try and help build strong relationships and i think you, you can really enhance autonomy but you can also squish it a bit and i think we've just got to be a little bit careful that we don't do that it is a balancing act but patients often value guidance uh, but they do also want choice yeah, I think there's some really valuable, some really valuable things in there talk about about what we can learn from our, our own experiences and some of those, I think, you know, I guess in inverted commas, bad interactions that patient that patients do have with with clinicians at times. You know, we will have, you know, athletes that have come to have come to us in the past and have said, I've, I I essentially went in, I sat down, I was told what I was going to do, I did it, and then I left. And it was, you know, very little going on in the middle there. Or you go to the other end of the spectrum where you've got a, an athlete who's emotionally all over the place. He's either, you know, bouncing around all over the shop or he's low as low can get. And one of the, co- the thoughts that's commonly running through their mind is th- this idea of just how fast can I be back? And really, emotionally, they're not, they're not really at a point where they can take a great deal of information in. So when we're going in and saying, you're going to do this, and then talking about it in those very medicalized highly technical ways we've lost the thread of it and really that person's just sat there still thinking the only question i need answering right now is how fast can i be back because that's really the most important thing right now for me because the thing that's stopping me from being an athlete is me being injured so what can we do now that's going to help to keep me feeling like an athlete even though i can't race i can't play football i can't be on a basketball court whatever it is that we're doing what is it that we can do and a lot of those a lot of those things that we that we spoke about in the in the editorial around some of the elements of main uh, you know kind of maintaining uh, the encouraging the athlete to maintain the social side of the sport wherever we are working with working with the athletes in rehabilitation settings within the sport and environment though wherever possible pitch side court side rehabilitation or training even doing it just so it's in the vicinity of people but again making sure we get the balance of that right because at times that can also be the most frustrating thing in the world for the for the athlete because it's almost like I'm so close to touch it but I can't do it. So getting that getting that balance right is really important, and it goes back to some of the points that that Dale made certainly about the pre-injury relationship and using that to really get to know your athletes and use your your, your knowledge of your athlete as to when that encouraging the athlete to maintain the social side of the sport is the right thing. But also the points that the Tom that you made right at the very start of your of your answers around. Well, what do I do if I don't have those pre-injury relationships? 
my first sessions have very much got to be around getting to know the person that I'm working with and really remembering, going back to your point, Neil, remembering that there's a person that's attached to that injured lateral ankle ligament and we're not just working with that with that isolated structure. So Tom, I'm sure to put to win there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think when we talk about some of these terms, kind of ironically, in a way, we're talking about straightforward language, but some of the terms we're using aren't straightforward, like autonomy, competence, relatedness. But it does actually come back to, to quite simple ideas, I think, you know, autonomy, placing the person in control, um, and but giving them the guidance they want. Um, competence is, a, I think, a lot around their confidence in their ability to perform their sport, their confidence in their injured body part, which naturally be, can become reduced over time if it's not really behaving how you want it to. And the relatedness, keeping them with the social side of the sport, I think, again, that there can be quite simple things that we can do that often patients will overlook. And it's an example I've, I've talked about fairly uh, regularly with people is that uh, we work in a health and rackets club uh, where there's a lot of tennis players. And it was a lady that um, injured her calf playing tennis. And her routine would be she'd come in three or four times a week, play tennis, and then have lunch with the people she plays tennis with afterwards. So it was her exercise, her sport, but it was her social life too. So with this calf injury, she's, she can't play tennis at the moment. So she doesn't come in. She doesn't have lunch. She doesn't socialize. Very suddenly, she's quite socially isolated. So she's lost the support bubble. Um, she's not really got anyone to, to chat to about this. She's not really got that social life uh, to help with it. So just very, very simple advice to her would say, well, you know, come in, join them for lunch. Why not have at least that social side of things? Even if you don't choose to be courtside, absolutely fine. But join them for lunch, have the social side of your sport, and we'll look to get you back um, to that as safely you know, as we can. But we can at least maintain that relatedness um, social side whilst we rehab. I think that's a really important point. That, And it works probably easier in a team setting than it does if you're a, an individual practitioner. Because within a team setting, there's lots of opportunities to keep that relatedness, that connectiveness with the team. Um, so, yes, they may not be able to engage with a lot of the on-pitch technical and tactical work, but they can still play a role in that. They can feed, for example, a ball in, and we use that as a, a, a quite a lot. Uh, they can still take part in some of the conditioning. They're reconditioning. The rest of the team may be conditioning. They can still do elements of that. They can still take part in some of the performance analysis sessions, and they might be able to learn something from watching somebody else uh, that they can then apply to, to their own things. There may be psychology sessions or group-based psychology sessions they can tap into. Um, and I guess for me, Part of that might come from just being sensitive around your appointment times within a team setting. Try not to make the appointments at the times which are the most social. So, for example, allow that entry conversations to happen whilst people are getting changed. Don't make that appointment over a lunch period, for example, where, again, that those injured players and non-injured players can still interact. They can still catch up with each other. Uh, and away from that, I've, I've used quite a lot of social modelling before, uh, both with players who are within the team setting, from players that I've uh, worked with before that are outside the team setting, which is really important for some of the younger players that, that I've worked with. But there's some fantastic uh, support groups within the social media itself. That can be that, you know, patients, athletes can be directed to. And that can be, again, an ongoing source of social support 
for what are 24 hour a day, seven day a week human beings, we see them for a fraction of that. Uh, they may need support in way more than the 45 minutes hour that we may be able to invest in them at that point. Perfect. You know, there may be room to do that in, you know, outside of, of maybe team sport um, environments, depending on where you where you work. Um, one of my roles when I was in the NHS is we used to run um, low limb classes for, for rehab for people. And we tried where we could to see if we could get people perhaps to, to, to almost have a rehab partner that had, was going through perhaps a similar injury. Um, and maybe sometimes we're at slightly different time points. So that the person that was perhaps at the beginning of their rehab could see okay this is this is where i'm heading like i can see how well this person's doing and the person that was a bit further along could see okay i can see where i've come from and quite often you'd find those people exchanging telephone numbers at the end of the session and going off to grab a cup of coffee because that's a person that can really empathize with them because they've been through a very similar um, injury circumstance and even if you're not working within kind of group classes there's possibilities to do that in you know if you're working in a private clinic obviously you just need to communicate with the patient and see if they are open to perhaps working with someone else and um, you know see if you can start establishing some some more support bubbles for them perfect i mean i, I it's this is something that i think is relevant to absolutely any clinician listening be that you know of, of any kind of background and i think what's been really interesting for me i i could talk about this all day is that we're essentially talking about improving patient outcomes but not once have we actually spoken about the you know, we've not spoken about hands-on treatment. We've not sp spoken about any kind of rehab protocols at all. Um, and I guess at the in the current COVID-19 climate where, you know, a lot of things are online, especially if kind of in an outpatient setting, this is more relevant than usual. Um, so just to try and tie things together a little bit, um, I'm going to go around and ask each of you to provide one practical tip for the listeners, um, which might be relevant more now than ever. Um, to try and improve adherence and um, in setting. I wonder if we go Adam and Tom to try and cover the, the non-team based sports and non-elite settings. Then Dale, I don't know if you then want to finish with um, your kind of experiences uh, um, within elite sports or in, in team sports. Um, Adam, should we, should we start with you? Yeah, that's fine. I guess the, the, obvious, the obvious top tip for me on a practitioner level is, is really the, almost the red thread that holds the editorial together and it's, un, and it's understanding and, and being comfortable with the fact that we aren't the people that, that rehabilitate our, our athletes. Our athletes are the people that rehabilitate our athletes. We just support and guide the process and help to give them the tools to do that. So really working it, really working in such a way that puts the athlete, the patient, whichever some you want to use at the at the at the centre of the work that we're doing. Um, and you know, adopting to your point around COVID situation being particularly important with a lot of the, the tele appointments and those sorts of things, that that does become even more important now to you know to use Dale's term 24 hour a day seven day a week people that they spend more time away from us than with us so really working with the athlete getting to know your athlete getting to know the way that they understand learn interpret different things so that we can be confident that the different tip, the different tips that we are sharing will be things that they're able to go away and use but do like I say doing that in such a way that recognizes that ultimately it's the patient the athlete that is the person that that really does the rehabilitation 
I, I would just add into that, say, you know, try, try to listen, empathize and ad adapt in response to the patient's needs. Um, you know, I think sometimes we have our, our own agendas or our own plans, but we really want to try and listen as much as we can and lean into some of those difficult discussions sometimes. You know, sometimes it might feel challenging for us, but but those are the conversations that we that we need to have with people. Um, and, you know, it, if we empathize, we can recognize how hard it is. I'm, I'm working with a, with a person at the minute who's been you know had a, a really persistent tendon problem they've been rehabbing on and off for about five years and they, they've reached the level where they're just so fed up of rehab and it's for me it's completely understandable um you know i can see why they're getting frustrated with it so they've come to me and said look is, you know can we do things a bit differently can we adapt what we're doing so we've we've looked instead of doing like an every other every other day approach where you rehab one day you run the other day which is basically a six day a week program which is tough we're looking at having a three-day cycle where we have a running day then a rehab day then a recovery day that just gives them a few more days off in that process. So, so it's, it's not about saying no. This is this is what the research says. This is this is how I like to do it. It's saying okay, yeah, that's yeah. I'm completely on board with you. I'm listening to what you're saying. Let's adapt it. What do you think about that? Does that work for you? And then going forward together, um, as opposed to having your own separate agendas. And with a within a team setting, it, it's been really difficult because we've kind of been on. We are back at training, uh, and then we're off. Uh, we're not at training. Uh, and I guess what, what it's actually presented us within a team setting about supporting athletes is new ways of working. So I actually look at the, the COVID environment that we're in as, as maybe positively changing some of our practices. It's forced, for example, things like tele-SEM consultations on people, not because you know, I think it will replicate some of the face-to-face -face, um, you know, clinical assessments, but Add as adjunctives to that as regular check-ins with with the athletes uh, is important. Uh, I guess within a team sport, um, COVID has meant that you've relinquished a lot of control as a practitioner. Uh, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm going to see this person face to face on on X amount of days a week, uh, whatever. And now it's a little bit more difficult to do that or it's a little bit more challenging. So my my advice for people working in team sports is just driving the educational approach. We're not going to get people to adhere and perform the uh, behaviours that we like, which are determined by many personal and environmental factors, unless we drive the educational elements uh, and we can explain to them precisely why are they doing what they're doing, what that journey is. Um, and for me, it's involving parents and it's involving technical coaches within those conversations that you have with the athletes, um, really. So everybody understands a coherent level of, of interaction um, and it doesn't become fragmented. I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast. A huge thanks from me and, and no doubt from our listeners for giving up your time to go through what is such a crucial topic. If people want to learn more about your work or want to interact with you on social media, then what we'll do is we will put links to your social media profiles in the notes section up on SoundCloud. Uh, and we'll also include the links to the editorial and some other relevant uh, material as well. So thanks to, to, to the three of you once again. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. We hope it's been entertaining and educational and we hope you join us again soon.